Just want to say that the shirt bet was Caleb's idea. <laughs> Not my idea, but, you know, sometimes our decisions come back to bite us, don't they? <laughs> I was a little worried last night. <laughs> Charles Swindoll talks about, a, in one of his books, talks about a conversation that he had while he and his wife were having dinner with astronaut Charles, General Charles M. Duke, and he was on the Apollo 16 mission to the moon, and uh, they were talking about all of uh, his experience, some of his experience, in particular driving the rover, uh, the lunar uh, vehicle. And at one point in the conversation, as Charles recounts this story, he said to the other Charles, uh, he said, I, I would imagine that once you got on the moon that you were able to conduct some of your own ex- experiments. And General Duke responded and said, only if we didn't want to return home. They had a plan, and they had to stick to that plan. And it was a very detailed, a very intricate plan. And if they didn't stick to that plan, and the plan was so, so precise that la- when they landed on the moon, they only had a, a few seconds of fuel remaining. I mean, it was down to almost the second. Everything was planned, and if they didn't follow that plan, something could go horribly wrong, and they would never return home. And in thinking about this and writing about this, uh, Swindoll said, I got the distinct impression that a rebel would not fit inside of a spacesuit. In other words, if you buck the system, if you have a tendency to go your own way and not follow instructions, then you didn't have any place in the space program. And I got to thinking about that and thinking about our responsibility as believers in following Christ. He gives us instructions for life. He expects us, once we are saved... We accept Christ. We are no longer, we don't, we, we don't own ourselves. We never really did, but we have given our lives to Christ. They are his. We are his. And he gives us instructions. He has a plan for us. He expects us to follow those instructions. He expects us to follow his plan for our lives. He expects us to obey him, but not just obey him, but to follow him and fulfill his purpose, his way. Because his way is the only way that we will truly discover satisfaction and joy and seeing God work in the way that God intends. And so that's important when we think about following God. It's not just enough to say, I want to follow God. It's not just enough to say, I want to fulfill his plan for my life. We've got to be willing to do it his way. And follow his instructions down to the T, because if we don't, something horribly can go wrong. And we see that in today's passage. We're going to be looking today, and beginning in Genesis 25, we're going to look at some verses uh, through a few chapters. But in Genesis 25, we see the story of Jacob and Esau in this series that we're in titled, Making an Impact in Our World. And we know that we are called to make an impact for the kingdom of God. And we are talking about how if we are faithful, we will leave a legacy. If we're faithful to God, being faithful, God will take care of our legacy. Our concern should be 
to be faithful with God. And as I've mentioned, as we go through this series, we're going to see that some did it the right way. We're going to learn how to follow God from some of these people and their, their example of how to do it right. We're also going to learn, we're going to look at some people who did not do it the right way. And we're going to learn from their mistakes. And today is one of those cases where we're going to learn how not to do something, how to follow God by looking at the mistakes that these individuals made. Uh, For this morning's passage, unfortunately, faithfulness is not really a priority uh, for the folks that we're going to look at. Esau was a guy. We're going to focus on Esau primarily from this story, and he was a guy who no matter what, he just couldn't seem to win. It was seem, seemed that he was doomed from the beginning, even while still in his mother's womb. Everywhere he turned, he got the raw end of the deal, and no matter what he did, he just couldn't seem to make it work out. Um, you know, life for some people just doesn't seem fair. I mean, you've known people, maybe you are one of those people. You feel like life is just not fair. It doesn't matter how hard you try, you end up falling short or you end up falling flat on your face. And for all of us, we felt that way from time to time. Well, Esau was one of those guys. Life just didn't seem to be fair for him. But the question is, for any of us, whether life seems that way all the time or if it just does part of the time, which it will, The question we have to ask is, how are we going to respond when life is not fair? How are we going to react when things don't go our way? Because there's a right way to respond and a wrong way to respond. And there's there's really no excuse, no matter the circumstances of your life, of my life, there's no excuse for making poor choices. We can still make the right choices even when life is not fair. The Bible, when, it, when it's talking about Esau's genealogy, uh, it, you know, we learn from, from the Word of God that Abraham and Sarah uh, gave birth to Isaac, who uh, is Esau's father. He marries Rebekah. And much like Abraham and Sarah, it took a long time for them to have children. And uh, eventually they did. And she, Rebecca becomes pregnant, and she has no way of knowing this, but she has twins. Uh, she is pregnant with twins, and she knew, all she knew initially was that something wasn't right, that, that the pregnancy was hard, it was difficult, that things weren't going well. And we would see that the reason for that is there is a glimmer of conflict that's to come. And we'll begin this morning in Genesis chapter 25, looking at verses 21 and 22. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. But the children inside her struggled with each other, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She, she knows something's wrong, so she goes to the Lord to ask why. She asks about it. In verse 23, the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the other will serve, the older will serve the younger. Now, this isn't the primary focus of this, but I want to just take a second and point out that this verse right here, as well as many others in scriptures, is proof that life begins at conception. There are two living beings inside her womb. 
And we see that in Scripture. We see that here. And also, we see that God's design and purpose, which is very much related to this series, we see that God's design and purpose, He has that for you before you were ever conceived. God has a plan for you, a plan for your life, a plan for my life. And He had a plan While one would not be as thrilled about it as the other, he had a plan for both of these children before they were in their mother's womb. So God's response to to Rebecca's inquiry is basically, you don't just have two children. You do have two children, but you have the beginnings of two different nations in your womb. And they're going to always be at each other's throats. They're going to be at war with each other. And true to his word, this was the beginning of a struggle that would continue for centuries, even to this day. The struggle continues from the descendants of Jacob and Esau. The Lord's plan was contrary to culture uh, that the younger would serve, or that the older would serve the younger. The younger would be the one that God would bring about the lineage promised to Abraham, ultimately the Messiah. And it was not going to to be an easy process because what we see, whether or not it would be easy, would be dependent upon uh, Isaac, Rebekah, and especially Jacob and Esau and how they responded to God's plan here. Unfortunately, they did not respond very well. The boys are born, verse 25. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. So a few truths I want to look at that we can learn from this morning, from this passage, as well as a few others. God created you unique Unlike anyone else. We see that while these boys are still in their mother's womb, they are unique. Different plans, different purpose God has for them. And then they, immediately when they are born, we see that. And we talked about that last week, and it's so very important for us to grasp this. Each one of you, each one of us here today, God has created you and gifted you and given you abilities that may be similar to others, but they are unique to you. He has a plan for you, and that's why we are focusing so much on the importance of making sure you are equipped and given the opportunity to use your gifts and abilities to serve. And I'm going to hit it again at the end of the message, but, but uh, filling out that spiritual gifts inventory, if you don't know your gift, that's where you start, okay? If you do know your gift, filling out that skills and interest survey on Realm, uh, doing that so we can begin the process of figuring out how to get you plugged in so that you can use your gifts and abilities. Because God has a plan for your life. Now, God has a plan for my life, but it's up to me to accept that plan and embrace that plan, to respond to it, to understand that God's purpose, I may not understand, but it goes beyond what, what, what I see here and now. And this is something that these boys and evidently their parents failed to do, as we'll see in this Story. This goes for how I view myself, accepting God's plan, embracing it. It also goes for how I, how I raise my children and embrace God's plan for their lives and prepare them for God's plan for their lives. 
We as parents, those of us who are, have a responsibility to love and accept our children and direct them toward God's plan for their lives so that they will accept whatever it is and embrace whatever that plan is. And we see this illustrated, these truths illustrated in, in this, this passage, this biblical account, all too clearly. Now, can you, first of all, can you imagine being 60 and having twins? You know, I can't, I can't fathom that, but that's where we are here. That's where Isaac is. Scripture tells us he's 60 years old. They had waited. Isaac and Rebekah had waited and prayed for their children for most of their lives. And you can imagine the hopes that they had for these kids. No doubt, they hoped that these two boys would get along, that they would, would, would have a good relationship. They hoped for the best, prayed for the best. But these two boys turned out to be total opposites, complete opposites. And what we learn here is that, that each child, and we see this if you have kids, you know, I'm always astonished at the differences in my children, their personalities. And one, one experience comes to mind that really highlights this for me. There are many, but one comes to mind. Uh, a few years back, I guess it's been about five, almost six years ago, uh, uh, Eli hadn't been with us very long. Uh, we took a trip to Columbia, Missouri, where uh, Mandy's aunt and uncle live, and, and uh, Mandy's aunt works for Bass Pro Shops, and she got us, on the way home, we went through Memphis, coming back to, uh, we were living in, in Scottsboro at the time, and so we stopped at the pyramid, the Bass Pro Pyramid in Memphis. Anybody ever been there? It's pretty cool. It used to be, you know, an arena and all that sort of stuff. So we go to the Bass Pro Pyramid, and because she works at Bass Pro, she got us tickets to go up to the lookout in the pyramid. I don't know if anybody's ever experienced that, but it's very high, and there's a, a basically a glass floor and a railing, and so we went with our four children, and one of them, you know, two and a half all the way up to however old you were. I can't do the math right now, Gracie. And so I'm watching my kids and their personalities became very evident because I am the warrior of the family, and not warrior, worrier. And I'm watching my children, and you know Eli, very cautious. If you know Eli, he's extremely cautious. Annie, a little bolder, making all of us nervous on the pyramid. Timmy, just going with the flow whatever, not worried about anybody, just enjoying the view. And Gracie, our mother hen, fretting that Annie or one of the other kids are going to fall off the pyramid. Okay. I mean, their personalities on full display. And of course I'm over there. I'm in Gracie's camp. Okay. I'm giving her a hard time, but I'm worried too. I mean, their personalities could not have been more evident in that. And, and it never ceases to amaze me how different those kids are. And how, how unique they are, and it comes out in so many different ways through life experience. And we see this between Jacob and Esau. Completely different. Esau was totally different. And listen, there's nothing wrong with that, right? We all are unique. God created us unique. But the next verse reveals a very serious problem. It doesn't seem too serious on the surface when you just read it, but it does represent a greater problem with the parents. With Isaac and Rebekah. Verse 28. Isaac loved Esau. 
because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, you have to understand the language and the culture here, okay? To say here, when this says Isaac loved Esau, of course he loves his children. And when it's contrasting or comparing that or coupling that with Rebekah loving Jacob, in this day and time, when you said that that way, the natural assumption was, I love Jacob, well, that means I love Jacob more than somebody else. So what this is saying here is that they were playing favorites with their kids. Now listen, some of your kids you're going to be closer to than the others if you have several kids. Or you'll have a unique relationship, right? And it doesn't mean that Jacob, that Isaac didn't love Jacob. It doesn't mean that Rebecca didn't love Esau. It just meant that they had favorites, And they didn't treat those two boys the same. And because of the relationships they had, each of them with their boys, it caused what was already a a difficult relationship to become even more relationship. Folks, this begins with the parents here. They were not treating these boys the way that they should. They were definitely playing favorites. I mean, you know, Esau, he was an outdoorsman like his dad, had a taste for wild game, took to hunting. I mean, just a natural at it. Loved being outdoors. Jacob liked to be at home. As we see, he, he cooked. He liked to cook. He liked to be in the comfort of the tent at home. Esau liked to be out underneath the stars. They were completely different, which again is okay, but Isaac and Rebekah had uh, favored one over the other. Um, Two different, very different boys. Two completely different. And again, this is okay, but unfortunately, you know, God has a plan for them. If they had accepted that and embraced it and handled it properly, it would have been great, but that's not how the story unfolds. And this is where we learn that the choices we make can have impact on our future. Again, very different. Different doesn't mean better. One's better than the other, but these boys are very different. And the underlying problem with this situation, again, is that their parents are playing favorites. It doesn't excuse the choices that the boys will make. It's not an excuse for their choices, but it does have a great impact. It does contribute to these choices. Look at how their personalities influence their decisions. And look at how their decisions determine their future. Verse 29 of Genesis 25, once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That is why he also is also named Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. (laughs) Doesn't seem like a fair trade. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die. So what good is my birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave uh, bread and lentil to stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. Now, birthright may not mean as much in our culture today, but it meant everything then. It meant a double portion of the inheritance. I mean, it meant uh, the family uh, line. It meant, I mean, here for these guys, it meant a position in the promised land, uh, through your lineage. It meant ultimately for Jacob and Esau, whoever had the birthright, that is who the Messiah would be born from. I mean, this was huge. And for all in this culture, it meant a special blessing from the Father. 
from their father, from Isaac, here. This is huge. This is a big deal. The birthright is a big deal. Some would say that Jacob tricked his brother, but that does not, that's not what happens here. I mean, there's no trickery going on here. He was pretty upfront. You give me your birthright, I'll give you the stew. I mean, the, the deal, hey, you wear the shirt. If one team wins, you wear the... <laughs> It's going to come back. I'm going to get mine one day. Um, but, the, I mean, the deal was pretty plain and simple, right? I mean, there was no, I mean, Jacob's, now that comes later. There's some trickery that happens later. But right now, what we see here is that Esau really just isn't giving this the thought. He doesn't, he's not as concerned about his birthright as he should be. And the point of this passage isn't to show that, that Jacob was a swindler here, but that Esau was willing to, to let go of something incredibly significant in order to satisfy his physical needs. And here's a lesson for all of us from Esau. Spiritual priorities weren't nearly as important to Esau as physical comfort. Is my physical comfort more important to me than making sure I fulfill God's plan for my life God's way? That's a question we all need to ask, and we need to ask it daily. Am I more concerned about physical comforts than I am pleasing God. And maybe that's why Hebrews 12, 16 refers to Esau as a profane man. He refused to think about the consequences of his actions. He wanted what he wanted, and he wanted it right then. And his, the impact of his choice would cause problems for generations, generation after generation after generation. But he didn't think about that. All he could think was, I'm hungry. The choices we make have impact on our future. On another family trip a few years back, we went to Dallas, and we visited where John F. Kennedy was shot, Dealey Plaza. We, we visited uh, the books uh, depository there. Uh, the kids and I toured it. Uh, the older kids and I, the younger kids, Mandy did something else uh, with them. We felt like it would just be too heavy for them. Uh, we saw where Kennedy was shot. Uh, we walked along the street where the X's are, uh, where marks where he was shot. We stood where Zapruder did and shot the film. Uh, but I took a picture of the book depository while we were there, and you can see that, the perch up there in the window where Oswald was. And you know, one thing, we've been to Ford's Theater. I've been a couple of times. I've seen where Lincoln was shot. I've toured the, the museum in the basement, saw the jacket he was wearing, all of these things. You know, when I think about events like this, this highlights the truth that I just mentioned, which is a biblical truth, and that is that the choices we make have impact not just on ourselves, but of people around us. The choice Leah Harvey Oswald made, the choice that John Wilkes Booth made, by pulling that trigger had impact not only on them, but the families of John F. Kennedy and of Abraham Lincoln, but not just that, the entire country, the entire world, right? The choice of one man had impact on the entire world. Now, your choice may not have worldwide impact, but the choices that I make are not just going to affect me. They're going to affect the people that I'm around, the people that I have influence on, certainly my family. And we see that in today's passage. Esau is not thinking about the impact. Neither is Jacob at this point. They're not thinking about the impact of their choices. Yes, it was God's plan for Jacob to have the birthright, but they were going about it the wrong way. They were not following God's plan, God's way, and their choices were going to have repercussions for them, 
their families, and generations to come. And both of these guys, regardless of what their parents did or didn't do, both of these guys are responsible for their own actions. Isaac and Rebekah should have guided them, certainly, better, preparing them for this. But instead, they played favorites. And then these boys make horrible decisions. And what we're seeing at the end of Genesis 25 is the result of a sinful nature unchecked and unguarded by their parents. We see the fruits of that. Both parents were were evidently too out of touch to see where this conflict was going. They were not doing all that they could, we can assume. Now, we, we have no evidence from Scripture that suggests that they knew, the parents, Isaac and Rebecca, knew about this trade that went on, at least not at this point. And we see later, uh, Isaac obviously didn't, didn't know about it. Um, but the focus shifts back to Isaac and his expanding wealth over a long period of years. And the next words about Esau only confirm that this distance between he and his parents was continuing to grow. After the story of Isaac's success and before describing the closing scenes of his life, Moses, the writer of Genesis, says this. He says in chapter 26, verse 34 and 35, when Esau was 40 years old, he took as his wife, wives Judith, daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Basemath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Now, when Abraham sent servants... Go back, when Abraham sent servants to find a wife for Isaac, he gave them strict instructions for them to avoid Canaanite women. Why did Isaac not do that for Esau? Or maybe he did, but we don't have any record of that. We assume that he didn't. So what does does Esau do? He goes out with little or no guidance at all. He searched where he wasn't supposed to. Then he comes back. And he shocks his parents with not one, but two Canaanite wives. Bad decision. Another bad decision that would impact not only him, not only his family, but generations to come. The choices we make have impact on our future. Big ones, small ones, some more than others, but the choices that we make have impact on our future. And this highlights the truth that sinful actions never bring satisfying results. What's really amazing about this story is that we see the, the, the truth that God is going to accomplish his purposes with or without our help. We can help him and enjoy the process, have joy in the process, or we can resist him and experience consequences. But God's going to accomplish his plan. There's another truth that's evident here, though. Even if we are trying to get where God wants, if we don't do it God's way, it's not going to be satisfying. We have to do it God's way. And so let's dig in for the next few minutes into this passage in Genesis 27. We're going to look at four events as they unfold. Let's walk right through it here. Beginning in verses 1 through 4. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could not see, he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son... And he answered, here I am. He said, look, I'm old and do not know the day of my death. So now take your hunting gear, your quiver and bow, and go out into the field and hunt some game for me. 
Then make me a delicious meal that I love and bring it to me to eat so that I can bless you before I die. So evidently Isaac doesn't know anything about the deal earlier. This is how we know that he probably didn't know anything about the trade that had taken place. It's only, it's only natural that, that Isaac should bless Esau. But you have to wonder if he had forgotten the prophecy that God spoke to Rebekah in Genesis 25-23. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Either he was trying to get around that, or he forgot it, or whatever. But he's not acknowledging that right now. We know that God, his plan for Jacob was to inherit the blessing and become the father of the covenant people. That was God's plan. wasn't according to culture, but that was God's plan here. Honestly, though, how this comes about, if you just look, if you look at it one way, it could make you doubt the goodness and justice of God. But we need to recognize a very important distinction that will clear all of that up for us, and that's this. While God ordained the destiny of the people who were involved, uh, while he ordained the destiny, the people who were involved, they chose a sinful path to that destiny. And as a result, they suffered unnecessarily. Yes, this is God's plan, but everybody involved in this story chooses a sinful path to that destiny. And it causes grave consequences. They could have just as easily, peacefully been obedient to the path that God had chosen for all of them. Unfortunately, they didn't. And there's consequences at every step. And the next scene uncovers a multitude of twisted family relationships here. Verse 5 through 17. Now, Rebekah was listening to what Isaac said to his son Esau. So while Esau went to the field to hunt some game to bring in, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Listen, I heard your father talking with your brother Esau. He said, bring me game and make a delicious meal for me to eat so that I can bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now, my son, listen to me and do what I tell you. Go to the flock and bring to me two choice young goats, and I will make them into a delicious meal for your father, the kind he loves. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Jacob answered Rebekah, his mother, look, my brother Esau is a hairy man, but I am a man with smooth skin. Suppose my father touches me, then I will be revealed to him as, uh, a, as a deceiver and bring a curse rather than a blessing on myself. His mother said to him, your curse be on me, my son. Just obey me and go get them for me. So he went and he got the goats and he brought them to his mother. And his mother made a delicious, the delicious food for, uh, that his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of her son, her older son Esau, which were in the house, and had her younger son wear them. She put the skins of young goats on his hands and the smooth part of his neck, and then she handed the delicious food and the bread that she had made to her son. Now, our focus is on Esau today, so I'm only going to make a couple of quick observations here. We see that there was a pretty conniving spirit at work here. Um, Rebecca is one that, that knows how to work a con, all right? And she's teaching it to her son. His own mother teaching him this. And that had to be demoralizing to know, for, for Esau to know that your own mother's working against you. And that had to be difficult. And we also see Jacob's response. Now, did conscience slow him down? 
It's not conscience. Was it integrity that caused him to question this? It was fear. Fear is the reason he doesn't want to do this. I don't want to curse, which none of us would. But, I mean, nobody says, hey, this isn't the right way to do this. This is the, I mean, nobody steps up here. In the meantime, Esau's in for a pretty big shock. He has no idea what he's up against. And the next event of the story showed Jacob had become a pretty good deceiver himself. Look at verse 18. When he came to his father, he said, my father, and he answered, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob replied to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of the game so that I may bless you. Now we see Jacob for the deceiver that he is, verse 20. But Isaac said to his son, how did you ever find it so quickly? He replied, because the Lord your God made it happen. Now think about this. He's such a good deceiver, and he's evidently, and some of this is my own inference here, but he's evidently so practiced and so used to telling lies, he doesn't, have, he doesn't hesitate for a second to involve God in his lie. I mean, he, you, say what you will about Rebecca, and she was wrong in this, but Jacob did a pretty good job of deceiving himself. It's obvious that they had done this, to me, that they had done this before, deceived. Verse 21, Isaac said to to, to Jacob, Please come closer so I can touch you, my son. Are you really my son Esau or not? So Jacob came closer to his father Isaac. When he touched him, he said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy. Remember, Isaac can't see. His hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he blessed him. Again, he asked, are you really my son Esau? And he replied, I am. Man, Isaac is a suspicious father, isn't he? Kind of leads you to believe that he had reason to be suspicious. That something like this had happened before. It doesn't really seem like this is the first time. Verse 25, then he said, bring it closer. To me, and let me eat some of my son's game so that I can bless you. Jacob brought it closer to him and he ate. He brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Please come closer and kiss me, my son. So he came closer and he kissed him. When Isaac smelled his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. I'm still amazed that Isaac felt the need to make sure his son's identity. And I, you know, Maybe it was just that he recognized the voice, but he keeps going and he keeps going. Um, Isaac was completely fooled, though, and he went ahead with the blessing. Verse 28. May God give to you from the dew of the sky and from the richness of the land an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow and worship to you. Be master over your relatives. May your mother's sons bow and worship to you. Those who curse you will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed. And then finally... We see the sad moment Esau finally arrives back and he realizes what's happened and he cannot escape God's plan for his life. His earlier impulsive choice to give up his birthright and now this trickery, the deception that's taking place, it it solidifies everything. And it's kind of sad the way it unfolds. Verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had left the presence of his father Isaac, his brother Esau arrived from his hunting. He had also made some delicious food and brought it to his father. He said to his father, let my father get up and eat some of his son's game so that you may bless me. But his father Isaac said to him, who are you? 
He answered, I'm Esau, your firstborn son. Isaac began to tremble uncontrollably. Who was it then, he said, who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it all before you came in, and I blessed him. Indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he cried out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me too, my father. But he replied, Your brother came and deceitfully, came deceitfully and took your blessing. So he said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me twice now. He took my birthright, and look now he has taken my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you saved a blessing for me? But Isaac answered Esau, Look, I have made him a master over you. I have given him all of his relatives and his servants, and have sustained him with grain and new wine. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing for me, my father? Bless me too, my father. And Esau wept loudly. His father Isaac answered him, Look, your dwelling place will be away from the richness of the land, away from the dew of the sky above. You will live by your sword and you will serve your brother. But when you rebel, you will break his yoke from your neck. The sad thing about this is that all of this could have been avoided if they had just submitted to God's plan, God's way. And this is where we learn the truth that obedience is the only path to fulfilling God's plan, God's way. Yes, Esau got what he had coming here. He made, a, made bad decisions. He foolishly swapped his birthright for a bowl of soup. I mean, he, he got what he deserved. But, man, it was sure taken from him pretty harshly, wasn't it? I mean, it's still hard to, to swallow this. So his reaction is, is understandable. He's ready to kill his brother as soon as his dad is dead. And, and any of us would have been upset by this. But remember the prophecy. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. That was God's plan. It was unavoidable. And you look at it and you go, man, Esau just couldn't win. It was before he was ever born. He had the deck stacked against him. But it was God's plan. And I can't help but ask, since... Everybody knew this was God's plan. Was there another way for God's plan to be accomplished without all of this sin, all of this rebellion, all of this deceit, this jealousy, and the tragedy that would follow? And the answer is absolutely, of course there was. This story could have been unfolded in a completely different way. Normally, I'm not a fan of playing the what-if game. That can lead to all sorts of of problems in your life. What if this happened? What if that happened? But I'm going to make an exception here because I think we need to look at this and ask some what-if questions. What if Isaac had been involved, an involved, proactive father here who was obedient to God's plan rather than allow his favoritism to passively resist it? What if Isaac had taken the lead here and prepared his boys for God's plan? What if Rebecca and Isaac had worked together to prepare them to obey God early in life rather than to allow their own favoritism to resist it? Planning together for Jacob to receive the birthright over it. What if they had prepared him for it? Obviously, they hadn't done that. They knew that that was what was going to happen. Why did they not prepare them for it? 
What if Esau had received attention equal to Jacob's and all the approval that he craved from both of his parents? What if he had willingly released the birthright to Jacob in obedience and surrender to God, believing in God's plan and faith? I mean, like we talked about two weeks ago, holding things loosely. What if, what if Esau had been able to hold that birthright loosely and, and just trust that God had a plan for he and his family, for his life? What if Jacob had humbly received the blessing and offered to share that wealth with his brother Esau. And this could have worked out a million other ways. The story would have turned out completely, a completely different way if everybody involved had submitted to God from the beginning and followed God's plan, God's way. But that's not what happens here. Instead, the story ends with Jacob having to run for his life because his brother wants to kill him. I mean, it does not end well. And we see the repercussions down through the generations. It's all about listening. Listening to God's plan. Making a decision to trust God's plan. To accept God's plan. To embrace God's plan. And to follow it. God's way. Now, I, I, I made a purchase this week. I bought some noise-canceling earbuds so I don't have to listen to my kids. No, I'm kidding. I'm joking. That would, I'd be following Isaac there, wouldn't I? An example of what not to do. But I bought these, um, and, you know, they're pretty nifty. You, they, you don't even really have to turn them on. You put them in your ear. You can switch them to noise-canceling or not. But the thing about noise-canceling earphones, earbuds, if you've used them, it's great, especially if you're on a plane or you're in a crowded room and you're trying to study or you, need to, you really need to listen or want to listen to whatever you have playing. And it blocks out all the noise. And I think this, is, this is, gives us a little bit of an of analogy, an illustration here. I think we need to view God's plan for our lives in this way. We need to put in the noise-canceling earplugs to block out all the other noise. We've got to make a decision individually. First, we have to believe that God has a plan for our lives. And second, we have to make a decision that we're going to seek out that plan and listen, put ourselves in a position, blocking everything else out, turning on the noise-canceling function so we can hear the Spirit of God tell us what He wants us to do. But it doesn't stop there. Just hearing and knowing, as we've seen today, is not enough. We've got to be willing to accept it and embrace it. And this goes back to what we were talking about last week. God has a plan for your life. Your gifts are unique. Your abilities are unique. My gifts, my abilities are unique. I have to seek God's plan in discovering what those gifts are. I've got to know what my gifts are. Then I've got to make a decision that I'm going to embrace those gifts and serve God wherever he puts me, however he calls me to serve, and to do it his way. We all have to make that decision, that determination. Are we willing to embrace the plan that God has for our lives? And listen, not only for us, but those of us with families, for my children. Am I willing to embrace the plan that God has for them? And the way that I do that 
They may not know that plan until they get closer to adulthood or become adults, but I have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to prepare our children to accept God's plan for their lives, to teach them obedience by modeling obedience, to teach them surrender by modeling surrender, to teach these lessons by having a a complete bulldog determination to follow God's plan and to do it God's way. If not, the consequences are going to be disastrous. God has a plan for your life. He has a plan for my life. He has a plan for this church. Not only should we, and we should, we should want to fulfill God's plan for our lives, but not only should we want to fulfill his plan, we should want to do it his way. And so therein lies the question, will we surrender, will we obey, and will we experience God's goodness and the joy of him working out that plan in and through our lives? Let's pray together. Father, we trust that you know what's best. You are all-knowing. We are limited in our knowledge. We only see what's right in front of us. We don't understand your ways, but we can know your plan as you reveal yourself to us. We can know your mind as you give us understanding. But we have to make a decision to listen to your voice and to follow the plan that you have for us. We have to accept it and we have to embrace it. Lord, I pray that we will, each of us individually. We as a church, I pray that we would continue to pursue your purpose and your plan for our lives so that we can experience the joy of seeing you work in and through us to accomplish that plan. We know that that knowledge begins and is not possible unless we accept the salvation that you provide through your son Jesus Christ and only through you, Jesus, can we be saved. Through your death, your burial, your resurrection, you make salvation possible. You make it possible for us to be forgiven of sin and free from sin, to experience you and to experience the plan that you have for us and to experience eternal life with you. But we, just like we have to accept that plan, we have to accept the gift of salvation that you offer. You will not force it. And I pray that if there's anybody here today or watching online that has not accepted the salvation that you offer, that right now in this moment, Holy Spirit, bring them under conviction, draw them to yourself, and God, may they surrender to you, accepting that wonderful gift. Lord, I pray for the rest of us that we would just allow you to search our hearts. What are the areas that we are holding back? What are the areas that we're trying to do it our way instead of your way? What are the areas that we are resisting your plan? May we surrender and do whatever it takes. Remove whatever it takes from our lives. Whatever you need us to do. Whatever we have to do to get right in the center of your will. I pray that we would do it. God, we thank you for using us at all. What a privilege it is to be a part of your kingdom work. May we respond to your word now in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for our time of decision?